Why don't you guys all stand? We're going to um, read a little segment of scripture. Tell you a little bit about what we're going to be doing. And uh, we've been in a series before Advent season, uh, four weeks. And if you guys need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. And if you want, you can open up into the book of First Peter chapter 3. That's where we're going to be at, First Peter chapter 3. We've been in a series prior to Advent uh, looking at the book of First Peter. So we've been describing this as a book, as uh, a writing from the Apostle Peter to uh, a community of followers of Jesus that were scattered throughout the ancient Roman world that were trying to make sense of how to follow Jesus faithfully in the midst of a culture that was constantly pushing hard against them. And as a result of that, they were suffering, um, and yet they were also experiencing God's empowerment, God's glory. So that's one of the reasons why we were calling this whole series Suffering and Glory. And uh, we are now and have been kind of moving back into First uh, Peter chapter 3. And this whole little section right here, um, we've been just describing as Peter's description of living the good life. And I'll explain why we've been describing it as that. It's kind of Peter borrows Old Testament language from the Psalms to describe those that live into this good life and love life and whatnot. I'll explain that in just a moment here. But we've been describing how that there's certain pillars that uh, Peter will describe that this good life need to be built upon, um, and ultimately a foundation. What I want to look at here today specifically is that foundation, because as we get back into this uh, really beginning next week, we'll be, you know, expanding our teaching and whatnot. Again, like I said, today is a uh, family-style service. Things are a little bit shorter, so I really appreciate your patience and not coming expecting a very, very lengthy sermon. You're welcome. Um, so I'm trying to set the stage so that when we get back into this next week, um, it will help kind of connect us to the, the future of what we're going to be looking at here. So what I want to read is I want to just read a handful of passages. Um, really, it's kind of covering verses 8 through 17, but I'm only going to read a selected of these ones simply due to time. Otherwise, I would read all of them. So I want to read just verse 10 and verse 13 all the way through 15. So verse 10 starts off, says this. This is the quote from Psalm 34, the one that I wanted to kind of uh, point out that he describes this idea of a good life or what does a good life actually look like. Verse 10 says this, First Peter chapter 3. For whoever desires to live life and see good days, and he's going to go on and quote the remainder of the psalm or a significant section of the psalm. Skip on down to verse 13. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ as holy. I'm going to read verse 15 again. Just listen carefully and maybe just meditatively consider these words. But in your hearts, honor Christ as holy. And this is the word of the Lord. I want to pray, and then we will just jump into this. So Jesus, right now, we invite you to show us what does it mean to honor Christ as holy. Jesus, what it means for you to be the foundation of everything in our lives. We ask that you'd open our eyes, open our hearts, open our experiences right now to receiving you in the fullness of that you are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So 
real briefly, just again to kind of carve a little bit of a, a future as to what we'll be looking at or give a, cast a little bit of a vision as to what we'll be looking at over the next few weeks is this bigger, broader vision that Peter's describing of the good life. And what we looked at and what we will be looking at, there's basically three pillars. Um, he's going to describe that in order to really truly engage or live out this good life involves being built upon these pillars of, of the right attitude the right actions, and then what he'll describe as the right anchoring or the right authority. And again, all of these things will be unpacked over the next couple of weeks. I'm not going to spend some time unpacking that right now. But what I really want to focus on is the foundation that I think Peter kind of casts for us. In other words, the idea of a good life. And I think if I were to step back and kind of create sort of a, a context for this, all of us, I believe, we want to live a good life. None of us wants to live a life that we have deep regrets over. None of us. None of us wants to get to a state or a place or a stage in our life where we look back and think, why did I do that? Or why didn't I engage in that? Or why didn't I live a better life? Or why didn't I invest more in these relationships or become a better dad or a better mother or whatever? None of us will ever get to a place where we just want to live a bad life. We all want this good life. And I mentioned this a couple weeks back when we were in the book of Peter, uh, Plato, Aristotle, all of these. This idea of the good life is not, is not central to the Bible. Uh, people throughout history have always been asking this question, how does one engage or live out a good life? And it's amazing to realize like, that the, the biblical writers actually cast the vision as to what does a truly good life, not just simply a, uh, an unsustainable good life, but a fully sustainable good life actually look like? What does it take to live into that, to step into that? I mean, in short, we can just simply describe it as it, it, it really looks like engaging with the God that loves us and has given himself to us, really living out, in other words, the gospel. But what does that look like? How do we do that? And that's really what I want for us to think about in terms of, first and foremost, it involves building upon this right foundation. And that's what I really want to really begin to dive into. Now, again, today I really want to focus on this foundation. The upcoming weeks we'll take a look at the pillars that kind of stem forth from this foundation, the pillars of attitude, having a right attitude, having right actions, and then a right anchoring. Um, next week, actually for the next week, maybe even a couple weeks. So if you want to think of it this way, today, next week, and maybe even a third week are all part of one, one big sermon. But it's one sermon in three parts because I don't have an hour and a half to preach. Um, but the point that I would make is this, is that it's kind of all one big deal. Um, so next week, I want to basically take a look at kind of the idea of deconstructing certain myths that we build around. It's very common um, in our modern world to not only interact with people or to have conversations with people and realize that there are many, many, many people, especially in America, maybe even in California right now, that have gone through this process of what they would just describe as deconstructing their faith. And what I want to do is I want to actually address that point blank head on and say, what does it mean to actually deconstruct well? It, it, it might come as a shock to some of you. I really don't have a problem with anybody deconstructing at all. In fact, I would even say that the Christian faith should be built upon a series of forms of deconstructing. Martin Luther, the great uh, reformer of the church, actually, the whole idea of the Reformation came from deconstruction. But I think there's a difference in which I'll, I'll nuance next week. The idea of what does it mean to actually deconstruct edifices that are kind of built around our faith and deconstructing 
one's faith. In other words, running from God. Another is saying, how do I trust in Jesus in spite of a lot of false edifices that have been built around this idea of faith? So next week, we'll take a look at this idea of deconstructing wealth. So if you know anybody, if you know anybody that has either gone through a succession of deconstructions or pulled away from Jesus or have been hurt by the church or hurt by other people and has kind of led them into a place where they're just like, I'm done with Jesus, I'm done with the church, I'm done with Christianity. This is the message or a series of messages you do not want them to miss because honestly, my hope would be, it would be to, to bring about a deep re-anchoring, a re-tethering of our lives to the historic Christian faith in a, in a way that hopefully would make a whole lot of sense. But before we get there, I want to really focus on today just this idea of the proper foundation. What does it look like to really build on the foundation? What is that foundation? So to, do, to try to answer that, I just uh, want to basically ask two questions. And that's, that's all we'll be looking at here today. So um, I'm setting the stage for all of this. So two questions. Number one is this question of who is Jesus? Because again, this stems from verse 15. Take a look at verse 15 again. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Again, this is Peter's admonition to those that are trying to make sense of following Jesus to those that are trying to even wrestle with the question of what is a good life? How do I engage the good life? Peter's response to you would be to honor Christ the Lord as holy in your heart. I, I want to I wrestle. I want to think about that today. What does it mean to do that? I think before we even get to that question, we have to actually answer the question, who is Jesus? Because I'm not convinced that all of us have in our mind the proper definition of who Jesus is. Again, it's, it's not uncommon today to interact with people like, oh yeah, Jesus, Jesus. I, I think Jesus seems like a pretty cool guy. But there's certain things about Jesus that I just can't buy. I can't buy the fact that he rose again from the dead. I can't buy the fact that he's, he's God. And again, this is where we have, to, we have to step back a little bit and say, who's, who's calling the shots here? Is it Jesus and those that were closest to him, a.k.a. the New Testament writers, uh, who gave an account, actually four accounts, we call them four gospels, four, go- one, four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. Uh, will we take their information that they give us, or will we be basically on our own to say, I'm going to script my own narrative as to who I think Jesus is? And if we do that, at some point we have to step back and say, maybe I'm the one writing the script for my life. And if I'm the one writing the script for my life, who's the one that ultimately is making the claim for authority? Oh, it's me. Again, it has limited mileage, and it will fail me. Because I can't ultimately, in the end, save myself. But Jesus can save me. Which requires me, requires me to take Jesus at the face value that he reveals himself to us to be. And to take Jesus at face value based upon those who knew him best. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul. To receive the revelation that they give to us. Of Jesus. So hopefully that makes sense. So again, number one, I want to ask the question, who is Jesus? Number two is kind of a two-part question. Is he trustworthy? And have I devoted myself to him entirely? So let's try to tackle the first question, who is Jesus? To do that, I want to just watch a quick little video, and then I'll summarize, and then we'll wrap this up. So this is a video from the Bible Project. It's actually kind of an introduction to the book of first uh, to the book of uh, John, and uh, hopefully, it's it's in my opinion, it's it's absolutely filled with a lot of theology. So just buckle up and get ready for this. And and if uh, you want to watch this again, just go to the website Bible Project and search for this video. But let's go ahead and watch this, and then we'll summarize with some final thoughts. 
ruling with God in Eden, a place full of life and abundance uh, and God's blessing. But humanity was deceived by evil. And Wrong video. The Bible introduces um, there should be one in there for God's royal. Uh, John, does it stay in there, John? No, sorry. Maybe we're gonna we're gonna have to cue this one. So sorry about that. Yes, no, maybe. Sorry. Okay, anyways, I think he's going to look for it. We, there's a video and, uh, about the book of John. It's the life of Jesus, so hopefully we'll get to that. And if not, I don't know what to preach on, so I'll just... That was, like, that was my message right there. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, if you find it, just wave your hand, let me know. If not, I'll just, I'll just talk and make stuff up as, as I go until I feel comfortable. So, anyways, hopefully we'll find it. Um, Anyways, in, in the meantime, what I really want to focus on is just this thought as to who Jesus is. Have we received who Jesus claims he is to be? And again, to get back to this, I think we have to, especially as modern people, that ultimately try to find answers um, and oftentimes are looking for some form of authority figure to give us those answers. At some point, we have to step back and say, what does the scripture teach us about who Jesus is? And will I choose to receive that revelation or will I reject it? It really kind of boils down to that. If I receive the revelation that the New Testament writers give me about Jesus, then it means I have to receive the, the whole picture of all of that. Now, that, that means that there's going to be occasions in the life of Jesus or who Jesus is that are going to be challenging for me to swallow. I might not fully want to accept it, might not want to fully receive it. Some of the teachings that Jesus gives me might be hard for me to take or to comprehend or to understand. And that shouldn't be shocking for us because if Jesus truly is who he claims to be, to be the the God-man, God and fully human in the flesh who's come to rescue me from my sin, then that means that he's going to have some ideas or insights or thoughts that are way beyond my comprehension. And again, I could choose to accept that, embrace, if you want to think of it this way, embrace that mystery, or I can take this kind of rationalistic approach that says, it doesn't make any sense to me, I reject it. Because I listened to a podcast. Or because I took a class. Or because I knew a seminary professor that told me something otherwise. At some point, we have to step back and say, will we trust what God reveals to us about himself. And this is what the Bible invites us into. And let that shape and transform our understanding. Give one more quick question to you guys. Do you you guys find it at all? No? Maybe not? Darn. All right. Well, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to give you homework right now. I would highly recommend... If, especially, I would say this, if you are somebody that is a little bit fuzzy in your understanding as to who Jesus is, or maybe you are somebody that's kind of like, I'm interested in who Jesus is, but I'm also interested in making sure I'm able to separate who I think Jesus is from who Jesus truly is and take him on face value, my recommendation would be to just go to BibleProject.com, type it in on your web browser and find that, and then look on there for just the opening video to the book of Peter, the gospel, I'm sorry, the gospel of John. Check that out. Just watch it. Again, it's like a little six-minute deal that will hopefully give you a good understanding in terms of who Jesus truly is and who he invites you to believe him to be. So what I want to do right now is I want to jump into this kind of final question in terms of is 
Jesus trustworthy? Is he trustworthy? And kind of raises this question of what are and who are we going to believe? Because at the end of the day, I would suggest that when it comes to this idea of living a good life, there is a battle going on in terms of various voices that are claiming to have authority over our lives. And the invitation that God brings us into is to say, trust me. I'm an authority. Trust me for who I claim to be. Receive me for who I've revealed myself to be. And as we step into that, that brings us into this journey of following God. There's going to be occasions where it's not going to make a whole lot of sense to us. There's going to be occasions where it stands contrary to everything I can even imagine. Again, at the very central claim of the Christian faith is Jesus who rises again from the dead. It's a, it's a miracle in and of itself. Like in and of itself, it's something that is absolutely abnormal. It is not the normal to see somebody rise from the dead. So and this is what Jesus invites us to trust. So the question is, is he trustworthy? But then really lastly, have I devoted myself to him? And this is what I want you to think about. Soren Kierkegaard, the uh, great philosopher and Christian scholar, actually had written something about this idea of leap to faith, not just a leap of faith. At some point, this guy was brilliant, but he also writes and points out that the, the, the real aim is I can know a lot of information about God, but knowing information about God is not the same as knowing God. It's important to know this because especially in the world in which we live in today, there are many people that have bits and pieces of information about who God is. And that bits and pieces of information about who God is might cause a person to think that I got it figured out. And that might either lead you to kind of a false hope, but the reality is you're still the one in charge. You're still the one calling the shots. You're still the one that has final and ultimate authority. Or it leads us to recognize that Jesus is king over all things. And I need to and trust myself entirely over to him. So Soren Kierkegaard makes this distinction between not a leap of faith, but a leap to faith. At some point, I need to take the information that I have and say, will I trust Jesus at face value for who he claims to be and step into the life that he's calling me to live? This is what I want for you to think about. Because I think for many of us, especially when we talk about wanting to have a good life, wanting to engage with a good life, at some point, we have to recognize that many of us, we have casually added God to our story. We look at life as something that God just is like, like an accessory. We add him to our lives occasionally, periodically, when it suits us, when it's convenient for us. But the fact of the matter is, we go on living the rest of our lives hoping that others that are of greater significance and importance or influencers actually invite us into their story. I mean, think about how many times we envision or fantasize over, man, if so-and-so acknowledged me, if so-and-so hired me, if somebody wanted me to sit down with them or want to take a selfie with them or be involved in their life, what would that be like? Oh my gosh, we envision, we fantasize over the reality of that. But do you ever step back and realize the fact that what the Christian claim is, is that God has actually invited you into his story? That God welcomes you? to be a part of the work that he's doing in his world, that's what the Christian hope is all about. Do we have it? John 1. We have it. You guys are awesome. All right, so I'm just going to let you guys watch this, and I'm going to wrap it up with some final thoughts, and we'll be done.
In the Bible, there are four accounts of the life of Jesus that altogether are called the Gospel. And the Gospel of John begins by introducing Jesus as the Word of God. What does that mean for a person to be a word? Yeah, it's a great question. Let's check it out. So John's account has 21 chapters, and it begins with a carefully designed prologue that places Jesus' story in a cosmic context. It starts like this. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning. That's how the story of the whole Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the skies and the land. Right. John is claiming that to really understand who Jesus is, you need to start way, way back in the beginning. And what was God doing in the beginning? He was speaking his creative word into the darkness. Words like, let there be light. Let the dry land appear. Let plants grow. Picture a king who can get things done just by speaking a word. That's how God speaks in Genesis 1, 10 times. And each word turns the dark chaos into an ordered cosmos that is full of life. Creation hears the word and obeys. Now, think about it. A person's word is their word because it embodies their thoughts. But as it goes out from them, it becomes separate. It's this idea that John explores next. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Notice how John has designed this opening statement. So the outer lines are about the word's eternal nature. He's from the beginning. And then the center lines are a claim about the word's identity. The word is both with God and is God. They're two and also one. Now, after these opening lines are six more paragraphs that are arranged in two matching groups. The first three tell the story of Jesus with imagery drawn from the scroll of Genesis. Creation began with God bringing light into darkness, and now, with the coming of Jesus, God's beginning a new creation. In him was life, and that life was the light of a humanity. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not overcome it. In the next paragraph, we meet a new character, John the Baptizer. Yeah, he was preparing Israel for something new that God was going to do by bearing witness to Jesus when he arrived. John came as a witness so he could bear witness to the light, so that everyone could believe through him. After this, the third paragraph explores the choice people face when God's light enters the world through Jesus. Some choose to stay in the dark, but others enter the light and are recreated, reborn as new kinds of humans. Unto his own he came, but his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave authority to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So these three paragraphs summarize the story of Jesus as God's word bringing light to the darkness. All imagery from Genesis. Right. And now watch. John will go back and retell the same story again, but this time with imagery taken from the scroll of Exodus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father. So the eternal word of God entered into creation by becoming a mortal human named... Jesus. And he dwelt among us? Yeah, the Greek word for dwelt is skenein. It means literally to live in a tent. John is comparing Jesus to the sacred tabernacle that Moses built at Mount Sinai, the place where God's glorious presence came to live and unite with his people. So Jesus is a human tabernacle? Yeah, he's the reality to which the tabernacle pointed, the place where God and humanity are united as one. Next, we get another mention of John the baptizer who's bearing witness to Jesus, saying, This is the one of whom I said, The one who comes after me actually precedes me, 
because he was long before me. After this, John tells about how he and his friends actually met Jesus and how they made the choice to follow and trust him and so were transformed by his life. From his fullness, we all received grace upon grace. The Torah was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Messiah. John was an Israelite, part of the family, that received through Moses the generous gift of the Torah that shared God's word and wisdom. And now, through Jesus, John and his fellow Israelites have received the ultimate gift of God's truth and love, Jesus himself. And this time, God's word isn't written. It's a person. Exactly. Now, to wrap things up, John concludes the prologue with words that echo the opening lines. No one has ever seen God. The one and only God who is in the lap of the Father, that one has made known. So, on the one hand, God is transcendent and above all, totally other. And if that were the end of the story, God would remain distant from us. But then John starts talking about this one and only God who's in the lap of the Father. Yeah, what does that mean? Well, remember in the prologue's opening, John used the image of God and God's word. Now he uses another image of a father whose son is sitting really close. A king and his word, a father and his son, they're both ways of saying the same thing. Right. John wants to make clear that the Jesus he knew was both distinct from God and also God. And as God's word and son and light and glory, Jesus came to make known. Yeah, to make known what? Yeah, exactly. In Greek, John doesn't say. He actually leaves the sentence open. He forgot to finish the last sentence? No, it's on purpose. It's John's invitation to keep reading the story so you can discover for yourself what Jesus wants to make known to you. Ultimately, John sees the whole story of the Bible as an invitation to know and be known by the Father and the Son, who together are the one God. Thank you, guys. Can we give these guys a round of applause? They have a tough job. You guys are awesome. Thank you. Good job. Good job. What a lot of you guys don't know is it can have a lot of stress trying to make these things work, technical elements. And so these guys are awesome. Thank you. So in closing, I'm going to have Mikey come on up. And what I want for us to just think about in conclusion is, again, this really important question as to have you devoted yourself to this Jesus or just your vision of who you think Jesus is. Because again, at the end of the day, if you simply just look at a Jesus of your own making, of your own crafting, he cannot save you because he's not the real Jesus. He's a made-up version of the biblical Jesus. The vision that the New Testament writers tell us about what God has done in stepping into this world in his son is to radically change everything. It's what Peter would describe as the good life, to truly live the good life. And it's Jesus that ultimately reforms and reshapes our attitudes, our actions, and from him becomes the new central focal point of the authority who authors our lives, who we consult, who we look to, to make big decisions and ideas that inform us as to how to live, that this is what I'm inviting you to consider. And to summarize, I want us to think about it this way. For example, analyzing and mapping a genetic code of a peach is not the same thing as actually sinking your teeth into a July peach. It's not the same. 
You could know information about a peach. You can know all the scientific elements and the genome to which it belongs to. But that's different than somebody actually tasting. In fact, you might even say that a child who's three years old who's actually eaten five peaches has more knowledge of a peach than a scientist that has done nothing but the mapping of a peach but has never tasted a peach. Observing a lion at a distance behind bars is not the same thing as getting into the cage and petting it. I've never done that. It's on the bucket list. But to keep a lion at safe distance might provide me some degree of information, observation, but it's different than actually having my hand and touching something that literally can destroy me in an instant. Casually flipping on a light switch and adjusting the dimmer is not the same thing as touching a live wire. Children, I would not recommend that. One might afford us the ability of being able to have power over the light, dimming it, but it's different than touching the source of it. Looking at a National Geographic image of a sunset is not the same thing as sitting on the edge of the ocean enveloped in the cascade of golden hour colors. It's not the same. One involves information, one involves actual experience. Watching a YouTube video of a surfer on a wave is not the same thing as actually wading in the surf, embracing the power of the ocean, and somehow either having control over or having it um, completely control you and tumble you. It's not the same thing. Standing in front of the wardrobe and wondering if its magic actually works is not the same thing as jumping through the wardrobe into Narnia. The invitation of the gospel is to trust Jesus for who he is. And if you want to explore this in this new year, and in fact, if I were to go even further without sounding trite, to move your faith from just merely having information about Jesus and keeping him at a safe distance to actually embracing the live wire, God's power in an encounter is to take a deep dive. You have to take a leap to faith to see what this Jesus is all about. My challenge to you would be this. I think I have two challenges up there, and I'll wrap it up with this. Number one, I'll give you a challenge, and I'll give you kind of like an extra challenge. Number one challenge, I think, is a little bit easier, but the challenge would be to read the four Gospels, all four of them. Let, let Let the authors tell you who Jesus is. And you adjust your heart to say, I will receive whatever it is they have to say. It might not make a lot of sense. There might be moments where you feel like you disagree with that. That's fine. Let them have the authority through the power of the Holy Spirit to shape your understanding of Jesus. If you want an extra challenge within that, do it on your knees in a posture that says, God, I want to learn. I want to be a disciple and I want to grow. I don't want to let a podcaster give me their opinion about who Jesus is. I don't want to let a radical atheist tell me what they think Jesus is. I don't want to let the culture, the broad culture around me, tell me their version, their opinion. So I want the eyewitnesses who sat, ate, talked, touched Jesus, tell me who Jesus is, and I'll receive it. If you want another challenge, my challenge would be to read the entire book of Revelation. I realize the revelation might have a lot of baggage for some of you, but my encouragement would be to read the entire book in one setting. It literally takes 
no longer than 90 minutes. And then when you're done with that, follow it up with listening to this amazing song called All Hell King Jesus by Jimmy Riddle. You can just check it out on YouTube. And I'm telling you, I think our greatest need of this hour right now is not more information, but an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. We don't need more playing games with Jesus. We don't need more information that gives us the ability to feel like we can keep at a safe distance. What we need more than anything is an encounter with this Jesus that reshapes, reformats, and transforms our lives. So in closing, we let's all stand and we will partake of communion. We have little segments, little sections in the back, islands, if you would, in the back, in the front. Um, and we will sing a song together, chorus, and then we'll partake of communion together and then we will just dismiss you all to go out. Some of you might need to be prayed for. You have things that are going on in your life. You just need to get real and get out and invite others to come into your life to pray for you, to come alongside you and whatever type of journey you find yourself on, whatever type of messes you might have made of your life, it's okay. It's part of, it's part of the, the fact that we are frail human beings trying to make sense of this life and yet at the same time wanting to humble ourselves before this God and say, God, even though we've made a mess of our life, we want to trust you to be the one to set things right. 